everybody, and welcome to That's Life, where we thank everyone at NCSY for our award and for a lovely, lovely evening last night. Good morning, folks, and thanks for listening. I am Miriam L. Wallach, General Manager here at the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm the voice and the face of my new little project, Breaking Bread Oven, on Instagram. Please follow me at Breaking Bread Oven. We post twice a week, and I'm really having a very good time with it, and I think that that comes through in each video. You can find me here every Thursday, right after Allison, and right before Nahum's live lunch. And just to recap, last night, Nahum and I were honored um, on behalf of the network by NCSY, and it was a lovely evening at Marina Del Rey. Um, it, it's funny because usually, or I should say not usually, because who's been to a dinner in the last 15 months, 16 months, but in the olden days or pre-COVID, going to dinners was not something you look forward to. You just didn't. It wasn't something like, wow, I got a dinner tonight. Isn't that great? No, that's not what it was. But last night, it really was. Like Everyone was so excited to be there, to be in person to see each other. And yes, every necessary precaution was taken. And thank God so many people are vaccinated that there was really this feeling in the room of we have this behind us. We are moving ahead. Life is getting back to normal. And it was so reassuring. But the evening was really quite lovely. My thanks to everyone at NCSY and specifically to Rena Emerson. And of course, to the incredible David Cutler, who just, I mean, David Cutler is a true friend. He's really a true friend. He's a great partner, and everything we do with NCSY, we really find wonderful partners at NCSY and, of course, at the Orthodox Union. The OU is great. Their leadership is great. It came through again last night. But, again, everyone was in such a good move, and, and, and David Cutler joked about, you know, I'll continue doing work with the Nahum Single Network as long as the Chalas keep coming. And I'm like, you bet, David Cutler, any time. So, my thanks to everyone at the OU and at NCSY for not only your professional relationship and your professional friendship, but certainly for your personal friendships as well. Today's national holidays. It's ballpoint pen day. I think that if I turned to my youngest kid and I said, could you get me a ballpoint pen? She'd have absolutely no clue what I was talking about. She'd look for it near a typewriter. I, 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 I mean, a pen is a pen, but the term ballpoint pen... I don't even, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that she'd know that. It's also National Iced Tea Day. I used to be a huge iced tea drinker. My husband, also a huge iced tea drinker. So shout out to everyone who likes a good, loves a good iced tea. It's like a real summer drink. Also, it's National Egg Roll Day. Yeah, I'm in. And National Founders of Alcohol, Al Alcoholics Anonymous Day. Shout out to everyone who is struggling with some kind of vice and who's doing everything they can to get life back in control. Um, let's do the fortune cookie, and then we'll get to the excerpt from my interview yesterday with Adasa Lieberman. Today's fortune cookie says, it was when you found out you could make mistakes that you knew you were onto something. Interesting. Maybe we'll keep that and discuss that during the live lunch. So yesterday um, at about 12 o'clock Eastern time, I was given the opportunity by the American Friends of Barilan University to spend an hour or just shy of an hour um, interviewing Hadassah Lieberman about her new book. It is a fascinating book. I highly recommend it. You can Google um, an, uh, an American story, Hadassah, an American story on Amazon. You'll find it there. It is an excellent read. 
And this is a about a 20-minute excerpt, I think we're talking about. We're just around a 20-minute minute excerpt from our conversation yesterday. So here on That's Life, this is my conversation yesterday with Hadassah Lieberman. And you came to this country, and then the follow-up anecdote about your name, which I find completely fascinating, is how a nun, when processing your immigration papers, encouraged your father to keep the name Hadassah and not revert back to Esther, for Hadassah was such a unique name, and your father was looking for a more American name, potentially, and the nun was who encouraged him to keep the name Hadassah. Which is really part of the story of our immigration. And to have this group of nuns who later during the 2000 campaign, I met some of them, they talked to me. And you know, that's the American story to immigrate to this country and then to have a Catholic nun tell my father, no, keep it Hadassah. And that's our story. And we have to be mindful of it all the time as good Americans. A hundred percent. And I, I, I find myself as a person is fascinated with names and the origin of a name. And I'm sure that you know that the name Hadassah comes from Hadass, from the myrtle tree. And, yes. And the name, the myrtle tree is, is symbolic and often used literarily to remind us of God's promise and of God's gifts. And I wonder if you often, or if you've thought about the fact that you and your story emulate God's promise and God's gift. You are a self-fulfilling prophecy. The reason I wrote the book was not out of an ego thing. The reason I wrote the book is I emanated from, it came out of darkness, my Mother Auschwitz, death of liberation. My father coming out of slave labor camp. And that was amazing. And then to go through my life and to end up as the wife of a United States senator and with the campaigning, it was something I had to do when I found my mother's diary after her death. How surprising was that diary to you? Shocking. And it's reprinted in the book. It was shocking because she told me odds and ends here and there, my father also. But I never knew some of these details as she walked in, entered into Auschwitz and deliberated from Dachau and the latrines, everything the bunk beds, all of that awful information, which I had to find out more about as I went through my writing. And, you know, the whole thing, when you look back at it, it seems more shocking than before. And then you hear bad words on the streets today. And we're saying, wait a minute, what is this? Because we heard no anti-Semitism whatsoever in any of our campaigns, whether they be local Connecticut campaigns for attorney general or for the Senate or the national for vice president. And then after in New Hampshire for the primaries for president, 
So we're very lucky. We never, and people along the way of the campaign would always say, and many times they were Jewish because they were surprised. Is that real? Is that the truth? I'd say, yes, that's the absolute truth. And, you know, as Jews, we have to know our history. We have to believe in our history and we have to live our lives accordingly. But also we have to be able to move forward with the state of Israel as part of our legacy. We really have the gift we have to lose for, move forward with all the time. A hundred percent. With a as a person who is so grounded and so rooted, to continue the Myrtle Tree metaphor, have you been mm -hmm. back to Prague? Yes, we went. I went back to Prague with Joe for two different official events, and it was amazing. We walked past some of the places that my father had talked about and just had a real sense of things. Yeah, it was incredible. And Shirley Temple was the ambassador at one point in Prague, the American ambassador. I remember seeing her and it was so shocking. Shirley Temple, the ambassador at Prague. So it was a, just all the beautiful sights that, you know, there's so many beautiful things that we know, that we've seen, that we've toured. And then when you hear awful recollections, memories about them, as a Jew, it pulls you back. You're afraid. A hundred percent. I am. I am. I'm curious if the the visits that you took to Prague were they while your parents were still with you? No, 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 not at Much all. Later. No. My my parents would not have gone back. My father was afraid to go back ever. These were really later when, now I did go to Prague one summer after I had, before I went to Stern College for two years, it was on a Zionist program that I was part of. And we went to Prague, went to Israel, but then afterwards, I went on official trips with Joe, with, you know, various leaders at that point in time. So I learned a lot from these meetings that, that gave me more to think about. The good would and Would your parents have encouraged you to go? No. When I went, not to steal the questions too early, but when I went to Auschwitz for 2000, I remember telling before it was after 2000 and I was chosen by Bill Clinton's White House to go to Auschwitz. And when I told my mother, I was thinking of going, she said, is it safe for you? Can you go? She was shocked. And then I told her I had to go. I had to be there. I had to. And I went in with Ellie Wiesel and others. It was amazing. Would they have Enough encouraged time. would they have encouraged you though to go back to Prague? I mean, would that have been a part of their lives that they would have been comfortable with you seeing? I think I think they would have felt it would have been an experience that I should see, places I should see. But they knew how much had changed after the war. So they did they didn't 
look, they didn't sit around dreaming about my going to any of those places. So it was one of those times that I recall, you know, okay, this is something we're thinking about, but they're not pushing my buttons to leave and go. And Understood. Understood. The, um, the inclusion of pictures of photographs in the book um, is, is not only a, a great addition to the story, um, but also perfectly centered in the middle of, in the middle of the book. It's not, I am a person who very much appreciates the design of a book, the construction of a book, and, um, and the, the placement of those pictures where they are, I find fascinating, especially the picture of you and your husband and your grandchildren in Israel. And what I find yes. about what I find about that picture is something that I don't know that I would have appreciated had the pictures been at the beginning. And I'll and I'll explain what I mean. There is the picture of Senator Lieberman there. He is beaming like a grandfather surrounded by his children, grandchildren in the Holy Land. And then there is the Bubby surrounded by her Anakloth. That's basically the end of my Yiddish, by the way, is Anakloth. So <laughs> sur surrounded by her Anakloth. And there is an expression on her face that I couldn't pinpoint until I realized it was defiance. And there is a sense of defiance and pride in, that, in your face in that picture, which to me speaks absolute volumes about who you are and what you represent. That's what I felt. And I felt that before the grandchildren, when Joe was sworn into the Senate, that's the one time we're allowed on, spouses are allowed on the floor. And I remember before he was sworn in, they were going through an orientation and I was sitting next to him on the floor and I looked at him, I said, Joey, what are you thinking? He's looking at the pictures around him of these, you know, well-known figures. And all of a sudden he was sitting there about to be enrolled in this private club of Senate, U.S. Senate. And he looked at me and said, Hadassah, what are you thinking? And I said, my hand, my fist is in the air at Hitler. I've survived. I have survived. And here I am. And that touched him as it did me. And it does me now. The, the photograph on the front, on the cover, is this defiance as well? Or is this the picture of an American? You know what? It was the picture that was chosen by publishers and people. And, you know, there are a few other pictures but it's all defiance in a certain way. It's for those of us who made it as children, as grandchildren, we made it and we're lucky people. Absolutely. It is such a, it is such a story. Your, your narrative, your entire um, progression of being of becoming or being an American from being an immigrant. I loved the anecdote about coming home from kindergarten 
and telling your mother there was no more Yiddish going to be spoken. Now, it takes a feisty kindergartner to... Oh. Well, it's the only way we can learn. We're immigrants. You know, this funny story, I was going down into Manhattan for a meeting. So I thought I'd hitchhike with Joe, who was driven down by his driver. And I was sitting in the back seat with him talking about my chapter on immigration. I just was explaining different things. And the Pakistani driver turned around for a moment and said, Hadassah, I want my children to read that chapter on immigration. And I was so touched by that. And I thought, you know, I really have to try to get my book to some immigrants because we share the, you know, we don't have the same language. We don't have the same customs. We don't have the same foods. We're strangers in a strange land as immigrants until you bond. And I was so happy to be able to tell this story with love and light because that's what I found as I went on. The light enters in and the light exits out to help others. And there's this moment of the, the, a, a, a line in this passage about just wanting to live as Americans. And I find that resonates for all of us right now. There is, I, I, I'd like to think that we're done using the term of unprecedented times. I would assume that everyone, if not all, almost everyone on this chat is, is already vaccinated. And I thank God for that vaccine. And I thank God that we're at this point, but we are living in challenging times where oh. there are plenty of people who feel that we are all Americans, but not to be Orwellian, but some are more American than others. And I wonder if you, if, if you have a message to the immigrants in this country, if you were able to gather everyone together, people who were just coming in now, people who are facing anti-Semitism, racism, anti-Asian hate, whatever the hate looks like, what would you say to them? That hatred cannot belong in our democracy. That we, I remember my mother telling me when I was older, not the baby, that she'll never forget coming into the shores of the United States and Emma Lazarus's statue give me your tired, your poor, your masses yearning to breathe free. And she was so touched by that. And we have to think as immigrants and we have to teach them. We always had to learn, you know, the statue, the, all the stuff that connects. And it's very important to teach our children to respect each other, our grandchildren. There should not be words of hate in the street. We should learn to respect people. If we don't agree on the same things, discuss it. And maybe you'll be brought in more to someone else's views. But we always sat at the table. Look, sometimes I got angry at my daddy when he had an opinion and disagreed with my opinion, and I would say, okay, I'm going. I'm not going to stay for dinner. I went, and then they called me back. 
But that's the nature of all. It ta- if you don't agree with people, they no longer sit and have a cup of coffee together. There's no such thing. That is totally taboo in this country. If we want to keep our democracy strong, we need to commit ourselves to being united as one country with different views and different immigrants coming to us with all the laws that we need and the care that needs to be taken and simultaneously welcoming to ourselves, to our relatives, to our friends. And always thinking of tikkun ola, repairing the world. The Hebrew phrase that has made itself into a lot of magazine articles, books. And it's so important because it's saying it's our responsibility to repair the world. Now, obviously, that's a gigantic two words. And who can repair the world? How many people does it take? We have to repair it with our children, with our grandchildren, with our family, with our community, with our political parties. It's the obligation we have upon all of us today, especially. I, I spoken like the wife of a true statesman. Are the is the generation of statesmen over? Are we just dealing with polarized individuals who do not understand that there is a greater common good? That your personal agenda is not what's going to make this country run. Where are where is the future of leadership in this country? Do you feel? I think right now. The polarized individuals who are negative are doing what, look, the internet's the biggest invention to all of us. It's turned our lives upside down simultaneously. It allows polarized people to all of a sudden have a little, their own little group underground that they're talking to. And all of a sudden they may have words of hate that are shared with these other people. So part of it is we have to, we have a lot of people who are good, kind, true American individuals, and they need to be heard more. They need to speak more. And there are too many people who are fearful, some of them, and going along with voices that if you really talk to them privately, I'm not sure they share, but in sharing as if they are positive, they do the worst to this country because these are loud leaders' voices. Leaders have to respect themselves and respect others. They are our teachers. We depend on them. And we can't be the minority. We have to be more of a group that comes together and is less frightened to speak. So true. We are afraid to speak. So many people are afraid to speak. It actually brings me to my next, my next question about public service being a family business. 
this, I, I've joked a million times as my husband is in a family business that unless you've been in a family business, you do not know what it's like. But I can imagine, I can only imagine that that is even more so true with a family that is dedicated to public life. So I wonder if you talk about that for a moment, both as the wife and the mother of a, of a, of a senator and a senator's children, but also somebody with her own professional life and all that that encompasses. How does, what does that look like? You know, everything that other people encounter, whether it's, you know, kids, school, problems, divorce, remarriage, all these experiences that unfortunately are not rare. We're all coping and working. Many, most women, men work today. And I mean, of course, after this year, we've had a way, there's a lot of ups and downs, but it's, they're real. And the effort that each of us as individuals have to take to have a profession to nurse a baby, to be pregnant, give birth to a baby, all of those and simultaneously make sure everything's going okay at home. Because I remember through Joe's campaigns, it's not like he was going to prepare dinner, which he didn't do anyway, but you know, and these are the tasks that we all have to figure out and work very, very hard at to make sure that we do not neglect. And particularly if you've been divorced and remarried, you have new children, if you do. And their children, they're your children, whether you gave birth or you've taken them on as a family. And in that regard, that's why we never use the word step-parent or stepchild. We just dismiss that because you marry someone, you take on everything with them. They have children. And I understand it doesn't work for every relationship, but if they have children, they have to be your children. I would never have married anyone if I didn't know they totally accepted my son who came in with me at a young age. Because that was my requirement of any remarriage. So it's the same problems all over the place. That's part of why I wrote the book, too. I wanted to talk about the challenges that divorce and remarriage and bonding and all this stuff entails. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nahum Siegel Network. That was about 20 minutes of my conversation yesterday with Hadassah Lieberman. The entire, or I should say the link to the entire interview, will be posted with the archive of today's show. So if you'd like to listen to that interview in its entirety, or I should say watch that interview in its entirety, you'll be able to do so probably knowing of Rami in just an hour or so after this show is archived and everything is posted. So my thanks to Avrami, and again, my thanks to the American Friends of Bar-Ilan University for setting up that interview, and of course, my thanks to Hadassah Lieberman for sharing her story and for taking the time to speak to me 
like she did. You've been listening to That's Life, <clears throat> excuse me, here at the Nachum Siegel Network. The afternoon continues with a full day of programming. The live lunch hosted by Nachum Siegel begins in just a few moments. Moments. Throwback Thursdays at 1 p.m. Encore of JM Rewind at 4 p.m. And the Arab Shabbos show. What is going on here? The Arab Shabbos show hosted by Mark Zamek, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., JM in the a.m. There is no weekly update tomorrow morning. But don't miss it as Nahum, trust me, trust me when I tell you, still has a very packed show tomorrow morning. You do not want to miss a moment of JM in the AM. And then, whew, boy, am I out of breath. Avrami hosts Saturday Night Seagull, Matze Shabbos at 9 p.m. JM Sunday, hosted by Mata, 7 a.m. Eastern Time. We close today with Morty Shapiro's One in a Million. If you missed his interview on JM in the AM earlier this week in which he promoted his new album with, with the, the Freilach Orchestra. You can certainly catch that on the archive as well. It was a great, great interview. My thanks to Morty for making the time, of course. And, of course, um, I highly encourage everyone to download that music, to listen to that music. It is certainly an excellent album. Again, we close today with One in a Million by Morty Shapiro. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys. <laughs> I look alive No one knows what's going on inside So much I cannot do Just want to be more like you Does it even pay to try? Mm-hmm. I know when billion stars come out at night Each one with their own purpose, their own light Those stars are just like me Each their own identity It's all in my state of mind There's nothing more than